ocean is being battered by strong winds from a powerful storm. I love this scene from the movie The Perfect Storm where George Clooney and his fishing crew got caught in this massive storm which was caused by two powerful low-pressure systems and they came together, they collided together. And I love the special effects where the swells, the waves, were like 30, 40, 50 feet high. And Clooney's fishing vessel was tossed to and fro like a ping-pong ball. It was, it was great, great special effects. But the sea can be very, very intimidating. It needs to be respected and approached with caution. I'm a fisherman, and one day I was fishing. I do mostly bay fishing, sometimes uh, beach fishing, but it's called surf fishing. And this particular place I was fishing at one day, it was low tide, and that's what we looked for. We looked for low tide, and we walked, at least I was alone actually at this time. I walked all the way out of this. It was so low to tide that I was able to walk very, very far out. And I met up with these two other guys. And we were fishing. We were catching a number of bluefish. And it was very exciting because there were, every cast was just a big mass of bluefish. And my, your arm starts hurting after a while. But it was very exciting. And I, and I wanted to stay there. And I noticed the two men left. But I kept fishing. Not respecting the sea. Not realizing that the tide was turning, and I was very far out. I turned around and I looked at the shoreline and I said, my Lord, I am very far out and the tide is turning and I'm not going to make it in before the water rises up because the water started rising up and I felt that it was like up, I had chest waders on and, it, and the water was like up to here. So I turned around and I said, I better get out of here. Um, and I, and, and you know, the clue should have been that the two men left already. So I started walking in and my heart was pounding because I felt that I really wasn't going to make it. Not that I would have died, but the water would have got in. I would have had to strip myself of the, of the, the way that somehow it would have been very difficult. I would have probably lost all my equipment. So I kept, I'm sure I was praying because I'm a Christian and I pray. I'm sure I was saying, the Lord Jesus, help me make it. <laughs> Make, get me through this. Anyway, I got, I got to a point where it was fine and I knew I was going to make it and I just continued fishing. <laughs> so the sea can be very intimidating as well as mysterious. No one tells it what to do except God. And it obeys God. God caused the sea to divide its waters so the Israelites could cross it and go into the wilderness to worship their God. Mo God through Moses split the Red Sea, and there were walls of water, and the Israelites walked through. So the sea is, to say the least, very powerful. And today, as we look at John 6, verses 16 through 29, we're going to see the creator of the sea, the sovereign, omnipotent Jesus Christ, defying its power and walking on it, and the sea's submission to him. And he does this for his disciples, to rescue them, to be with them and to teach them. He will, if he chooses, to move heaven and earth for his elect, his chosen, his people, his church. Make no mistake about that. He will move heaven and earth for his church. So let's read our text tonight. John 6, verses 16 through 29. 
When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a wind was a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Others, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, verses 1 through 71, there's one particular main theme. And I said the main theme last week, but I'm going to present it to you, and I'm going to give you this question. It's something you need to ponder. Anytime anyone preaches, demands a verdict. Jesus always preached for a verdict. And I'm going to ask you, what are you filling your spiritual hunger with in your life? Is it with Jesus? Or is it with temporal things which do not satisfy and leaves you empty and still hungry? Are you trusting Christ because he's enough? That's the title of the message. Jesus is enough, part two. I really should have named it Jesus is more than enough, part two. Or do you seek him for what you can get from him? This is the fifth sign. First sign was turning the water into wine. Second sign was healing the nobleman's son. Third sign was when Jesus healed the invalid. The fourth sign was last week, the feeding of the 5,000. And this is the fifth sign. And John's gospel is centered around seven signs. And this is the fifth sign, the walking on the water. And three things we're going to, or five things actually, we're going to see when we look at this text. There's first of all, there's genuine believers. We're going to look at characteristics of genuine believers and characteristics of false believers. The first characteristic of a true believer in Jesus Christ is obedience. Are you obedient? The second is a true characteristic of Christ is they're Christ-centered. They keep their focus on Jesus Christ. And the third is they worship Jesus. They're worshipers. And the fourth thing we're going to look at is unbelievers or false believers seek Jesus but wrong motives. And the fifth thing is God in his infinite mercy and his infinite grace reveals correct motives and how to 
have correct motives. So in this passage of scripture we will look at today, we were gonna, we're going to see how the disciples reacted when they encountered a storm and saw Christ walking on the water. That's the fifth sign. In this section, verses 16 through 29, is the sequel to the first part of the chapter, um, chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, which I preached on last week. In verses 1 through 14, I'll give you a little review. In verses 1 through 14, Jesus miraculously feeds a crowd of anywhere from Ten, even though it says 5,000 men, because that's excluding women and children, it was probably anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people. That's amazing. That's totally amazing. And he feeds them with five loaves and two small fish, which he, really he created. He creates out of nothing, really. You really want to get technical, ex nihilo, God creates out of nothing. He's the great creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in Colossians it says, all things were created to him, uh, through him and for him. And earlier that day, Jesus was teaching and he was healing the sick. It's now at the end of the day and the people are hungry and Jesus feeds them. And when the crowd saw this amazing miracle, they, they, they proclaimed, they rightly proclaimed, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. So they they recognized something was different about Jesus. And the prophet they were talking about was the prophet Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18.15, where he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from whom, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. And they were ready, they were so, they were in a frenzy, they were so excited about this man who fed us that they were ready to force Jesus to be king. He's the Messiah. But sadly, they missed the point. Instead of falling down and worshiping this Messiah, Jesus, instead of repenting of their sins, instead of crying out for mercy and grace, they wanted to make him a Messiah of their liking. Not why Jesus came, of their liking. They thought they had a Messiah who would meet all their needs and wants, free them from the Roman oppression. They wanted really a, a genie. They wanted a Santa Claus. They wanted someone that they, they could rub the, the, the bottle and, and a genie would pop out and say, um, my wish is your command. That's what they wanted. They missed the point, as many do today. They see Jesus as one who gives bread, not the bread of life himself, that he is the bread of life himself. He didn't come to give you bread. I, I stressed that last week. He didn't come to give you bread he came to be your bread. He came to give you a new appetite. That's what it means to be born again. A new appetite, new desires. Christ is now not part of your life. He's your whole life. And we come to the next section, the storm and Jesus walking on the water. We may think, how does this fit in with bread? This is almost like a parenthesis in the middle of this long text. Well, first of all, Jesus in his omniscience knew the storm was coming. He knew the storm was coming. Was he sending them into great danger purposely or deliberately? Or was he actually rescuing them? Yes, he was rescuing them. You know what he was rescuing them from? From getting swept along by the crowd who missed the point of, of feeding the multitude. 
They missed the point. He didn't want them getting involved in that. They were trying to make him king, but for the wrong reasons. And he didn't want them to be involved in that and, and, and be corrupted by that. And another reason is that his disciples would listen, would learn to trust him even more. So Jesus gave two signs. One on the land and one on the water. They revealed Jesus as the provider of bread, which leads to eternal life, which I will expound on the next time I preach. And as the Savior who intercedes for and protects his own, which we're going to look at tonight. He intervenes in their, in their, in time, in their times of trouble and brings them to safety. John chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, and we'll read it again, says this. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come. So the first characteristic of a genuine believer is obedience. Listen to Mark, Matthew 14.22. This is, by the way, this, the four Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, all give this sign. All give this... I'm sorry. Um, Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. All give the sign of Jesus feeding the 5,000. But the walking on the water is only in Matthew, Mark, and John, not Luke. But Matthew says this. He says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. He made his disciples get into the boat. The Greek word for made is anakazo and means to compel, to force, to urge, to insist. He forced them to do this. He said, go. They wanted to stay behind. They wanted to stay with him. But he didn't want them there. The fact he compelled them to get into the boat was probably because they were not willing to leave him. They were reluctant to leave him. So Jesus, knowing the influence the crowd would have on them and how susceptible they were to this kind of thinking, Jesus made them get into the boat. Now, they could have said no, but they reluctantly got into the boat because they obeyed. Unwillingly, they obeyed. Jesus may tell you to do something, and you may not want to do it. Do it anyway. Yeah. If you know Jesus is saying something to you, and you know the word of God says something to you, do it anyway. Obedience is the characteristic of a genuine Christian. Amy Carmichael had the characteristic of a true disciple. How many of you have ever heard of Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India? She obeyed God and went to India and rescued many young girls who were forced into temple prostitution to earn money for their priests. Even today in India, over 50 years after her death, many remember her and how she was like a mother to them. I was watching this little video clip of the people in India and how they loved her. They said she was like a mother, you know, how she treated us. One life of obedience, many lives transformed. Is it worth it to obey Amen. God? The cost isn't the question. The cost is never the question. There's always a cost. It's obedience. That's what counts. The disciples now get into the boat reluctantly, but obediently, and originally started to head to Bethsaida. 
according to Mark 6.45. But when Jesus had come to them, but when Jesus had not yet come to them, they started their voyage to Capernaum. And John says it was dark. Now, I, I love what D.A. Carson says about Jesus. It was dark, and you talk about Jesus. He says, The darkness of the night and the absence of Jesus are powerfully linked. And what does John 1.5 says? He says, The light shines in darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. Without Jesus, there is only darkness in one's soul. Verses 18 and 19. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. As disciples rowed across the sea towards Capernaum, a sudden squall appeared, a storm. It was a squall. Anybody know what a squall is? Did you ever see a squall? This is a squall. A squall is a sudden localized storm which brings a sudden gust of wind accompanied by rain, snow, or sleet. I remember seeing those a few times when after a major nor'easter snowstorm. And, you know, I remember one time I was in New Jersey and I was driving and, and all of a sudden, you know, the, it, the, the clouds were, there was no clouds around. And it was after a big storm. And I remember seeing in the distance this black cloud. And all of a sudden it was over us. And for about 20 minutes, the wind was blowing and it dropped to like, an inch or two of snow on the ground that quickly. That's a squall. The Sea of Galilee is approximately six to 700 feet below sea level. That is low. It's in the Jordan Rift, which is a valley. And the surrounding hills are about 2,000 feet above sea level. And the sharp drop of nearly 3,000 feet, you've got 2,000 feet of mountain or hills, and one, almost 1,000 feet below sea level, so you have almost 3,000 feet in this sharp drop. Um, of, uh, from the mountain to the surface of the lake creates ideal conditions for sudden violent storms. And they're notorious. The Sea of Galilee is notorious for this. Storms would pop up without warning. That's what happened to the disciples. The cooler air rushed down the slopes and hits the surface of the lake with great force, making white caps. You know, white caps on the ocean. You ever see when it's windy and there's, there's all these white caps? And they create dangerous conditions for small boats. So the disciples found themselves in, in, in one of these notorious storms. Its winds were so powerful, Matthew 14, 24 says, that the, boats, the boat was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. They were like three or four miles away from land. Now these were seasoned fishermen. They weren't, you know average fishermen. They were seasoned. That was their jobs. And they obviously encountered storms before. However, I think this storm must have been one of the sovereign Lord of the universe. He prepared to teach his disciples a very, very valuable lesson. I believe everything, everything is no coincidence in life. I remember my, when I first became a, a Christian, I told my friend that he said, John, I don't think there's light of God, I don't think there is anything that's a coincidence. They had to have been alarmed when the storm swept the lake. Even though there were seasoned fishermen, I mean, this was a violent storm. The disciples were in great trouble. They, they, they steered their, their boats into the contrary winds. Those of us who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord 
We're going to encounter storms in our lives. I mean, there's no doubt. When we walk with Christ, we will encounter storms in our lives. This is a definite. Obey anyway. This proves the genuineness of your faith. You can be obedient. I'm not talking about perfect obedience. We can all fail at times in, in our obedience. The apostles failed in their obedience. But we're bent. We're bent towards obedience. Our heart's desire is we want to obey Christ. Prone to wander. Yeah. In the parable of the sower, the seed that sowed represented the word of God. And the soil represents the heart. And listen what, to what Jesus says about the seed, the second soil, I'm sorry, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 13, verses 5 and 6. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, since they had no root, they withered away. Now listen to Christ's interpretation of that in verses 20 and 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The genuine Christian will encounter storms, trials, persecution. They will. You will. I will. We'll get through it. We will get through it. That's God's promise. When trouble comes to the false professing Christian... They're gone. There's no way to be found. They don't care about being obedient. They want out of the trial. They want out of the tribulation. They don't want to be persecuted because of the word. That's, the Bible's clear on that. It says, if you're a Christian, this is what's going to happen. So Jesus' disciples are in this violent storm and something happens. And now their fear is even greater. Their fear is greater than the storm. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And verse 19 says, they were frightened. <clears throat> Christ was God in flesh. And his divine nature was hidden by the veil of humanity. However, sometimes his divine nature shone, showed through. And that's what happened here. You and I would have had the same reaction as the disciples. Think about it. Think about it. It's dark. There's an angry sea. Jesus is walking on it without any boat, defying the, the laws of gravity. Oh, by the way, the skeptics that want to take the miracle out of this, what they say is, um, I think it's William Barclay, who's a great commentator, but he just kind of likes to always take the miracles out of the Bible. For what reason, I don't know. But he says, well, Jesus was on the shoreline walking, and that's what they really saw on the shoreline. I don't know. I can't imagine being three, four miles out to sea. I was walking with my wife today. I said, we were walking by the Bell Parkway by the water, and I said, look across there, Kim. I said, you see Staten Island? I said, could you see anybody? She said, no. That's only a mile and a half to two miles. Now, you're three to four miles out into the sea. It's dark. And it's stormy. 
And in verse 20, Jesus reveals himself. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And many scholars believe it is I, ego aimi, is a declaration of his divinity. Because a lot of times when Jesus says, I am, he's talking about his divinity. Jesus calms their fears by identifying themselves. Their fears melted into peace. The bread of life was there. Jesus did not leave them nor forsake them. He taught them a very, very valuable lesson. A lesson they would never forget. Jesus will be there in storms of the Christian's life and reveal himself. Son or daughter, it is I. Do not be afraid. Are you satisfied when you go into a storm? Do you feel the sense of Christ's presence there? One night I woke up and I had a very... Many years ago, I had a very bad fear and anxiety attack. I woke up in the middle of the night and I was... I mean, every nerve ending in my body was filled with fear and, and anxiety. Strong. I got up out of my bed, I opened my Bible and started reading. And all of a sudden, and this, is, this really happened, all of a sudden... The fear just melted into peace. It's like I actually felt a peace from the top of my head going down to the soles of my feet. I felt it dissipate. I felt like the fear disappeared out of my body or drained out of my body from head to toe. My mind and nerve endings were in total peace. Christ was there with me in the middle of that storm. And he said, it was as if he was a, a said to me, it is I. Amen. Do not be afraid, John. After Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, verse 21 says, Then they were glad to take him into the boat. Their focus was now on Christ. True believers are obedient, and true believers keep their focus on Christ. Is your focus on Jesus Christ? Peter was so focused on Jesus, he didn't want. He didn't wait until Jesus got into the boat. He wanted to go to him. Let's read Mark 14, the account. Mark's account of Jesus walking on the water. Verses 28-31. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall... No, that's not the one. Okay, it's, let me, I'll get it to you in a second. <laughs> It's, it's Matthew, I'm sorry, my apologies. Matthew 14. Okay. Matthew 14, starting with the 27th verse. But Jesus said, uh, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached 
out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So Peter got distracted, as we all can, by the storm. His eyes went off of Jesus and on the problem, and he began to sink. But Jesus pulled him to safety. Listen, when you and I go through storms, keep your heart and mind on Christ, not on the trial. He's going to see you through. And you can count on it because that's his promise. And God's promises are yea and amen. And he's not a God that he should lie. Or he's not a man that he should lie. He's God that always tells the truth. Some of you are going through squalls, short storms in your life. Keep your focus on it and he'll get you through. Some of you are going through nor'easters, long, long storms. For some of you, storms, the storm is lifelong. It's never going to end. But God will get you through on the other side. I, I think of Johnny's, Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a hero. She's my hero. Who has, uh, she's a paraplegic and she, she's going to have this for the rest of her life. Her and her husband have to deal with this. But yet, through the storm, she's, her eyes are focused on Christ. And she has a worldwide ministry and she's touching thousands and thousands of lives. Keep your eyes on Christ. So the disciples take Jesus into the boat and the last part of verse 21 says, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The boat instantaneously reached its destination. By Christ's presence, the boat immediately came to safety on the other side. Now this is an historical narrative which we're reading. This actually happened. This wasn't a parable. It wasn't supposed to be symbolic or allegoric. It was an actual historical narrative. But it illustrates to us what happens when Jesus comes into our lives. Listen, God doesn't take away all difficulties and make our life easy, but he gets us through our darkness. He'll get you through your darkness. Now, now, when they received Jesus into the boat, the wind ceased and immediately they reached their destination. And, and this astounded them. This astounded them. And Matthew 14 tells us in verse 33 that those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. They worshipped him. So, genuine believers obey God. They're Christ-centered. They keep their focus on Christ. And they worship God. I don't have time to develop this third point fully. But if you're a genuine Christian... Worship is not a stranger. It's not a, you're not a stranger to worship. You, you love to worship. And you love to adore the God of your salvation. There's only one response when Christ reveals himself in a storm. To fall before him and worship him. The wise men worship Jesus at his birth. The healed blind man touched by Christ worshipped him. Thomas, when he saw Jesus after his resurrection, he worshipped him. The woman who came to the tomb after his, worship, after his, his, his resurrection, he, she worshipped him, and so on and so forth. True believers truly worship. Even though Jesus' disciples were amazed by his miracle, they responded in adoration and worship. Whenever I realize God is in the storms of my life, I begin to worship him. I begin to love him. And I begin to I, I, I just begin to be overwhelmed with his, with his, the sense of his presence in my life. And whenever I realize how sinful I am, 
And he saved me when I was still a rebellious, sinful, evil human being. I worship, adore him, and thank him. Don't think about my past and how sinful I am. I don't want to think about that. I want to think of what he took me from and worship him. I know my past already, but I want to know him more and more and more. The true disciples of Christ, when they were encountered by a storm, they responded by obedience, their focus was on Jesus, and they worshipped him. Not so the false believers. They can't. It's impossible for a false believer to worship. It's impossible for a false believer to be obedient. It's impossible for a false believer to be Christ-centered. Listen to verses 22 through 26. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they said they, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are, not, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Well, to make a long commentary on this section short, let me say when the people who are on the other side of the Sea of Galilee realized that the disciples got into the boat without Jesus, they saw that Jesus didn't get into the boat with them and went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus was nowhere to be found, they got into boats themselves and went to Capernaum, Capernaum to seek Jesus, to look for Jesus. They, saw, they said, wait, the disciples left, but Jesus didn't leave. Why? Where, where did he go? So when they finally found him, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They knew he didn't go with his disciples, as I said, and they knew he, had, he didn't walk on land around the sea, because that would have took forever. It was a mystery to them, and I love Jesus. He purposely did not answer their question directly. Doesn't Jesus do that sometimes? He just doesn't have to answer us. He just doesn't have to. He answers us when he wants to and how he wants to. If he told them, well, I walked on the water and got here, you know what that, you know what, that would have, you know what would have happened. They would have put him into a greater frenzy. Wait a minute. He fed 5,000, or really 10 to 20,000 people. He fed the multitudes and he walked on water. Get him! Let's make him king! That's what they would have done. They would have went into an absolute frenzy. And this time they would have grabbed him and forced him to make him. But Jesus, he didn't do that. He knows everything. He's the omniscient God. Omniscience means that he knows all things. Instead, he lays bare their selfish, wrong motives. That's the characteristic of a false believer. Wrong motives. Basically, he said, let's read verse 26 again. Truly I say to you, you are not seeking me. Not be, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Basically, he said, the signs point to me. I did a sign, that's about me and who I am. But you seek me for what you can get out of me. 
You seek me because you had your fill of the bread. You're not seeking me because I'm the Messiah. You're not seeking me because I can give you eternal life. You're not seeking me because I can now be Lord of your life. You're seeking me because you had your fill. Because you want a Santa Claus. You want a genie. They failed to grasp the spiritual implication of the feeding of the multitude. And I think Jesus Christ's infinite mercy, he reveals to them the correct motives. See, he told them, yeah, you, you're seeking me for the wrong motives. But now he gives them the positive side. He says, I'm going to tell you the right motive. Verse 27 to 29, he says, Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, the God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus was very, very concerned for the physical need. You don't miss that in the story. And don't miss that when I'm, when I'm speaking. I'm not saying that Jesus is not concerned about our physical needs. But he's eternally more concerned about our spiritual, our eternal needs. The, the multitude that he fed? Okay. The bread will sustain him for just a little while. But when Jesus gives his bread, his salvation, it lasts for eternity. You see, you receive, if you're born again, you receive spiritual food at the moment of salvation. But guess what's sustaining you? That same spiritual bread, Christ himself, is sustaining you. And he, so he's concerned for their physical needs. And I'm sure, you know, once again, it was his pleasure to feed the multitude on a physical level. He didn't do that just to teach them a lesson. That was the primary reason, yeah. But he did it because he was concerned. He didn't want them to get, you know, faint on the way home because they haven't eaten. So he was cons concerned about their physical needs. But he's showing them you got it wrong. Don't work for the temporal food, but the spiritual food that leads for, to eternal life. And he was speaking, of course, of himself. He didn't just want to give them things, temporal things, but himself. Food that endures forever. Food that sustains you for all eternity. People without Christ spin their wheels in this life, pursuing, pursuing temporal things that don't satisfy. Only Christ himself gives spiritual, eternal blessing. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet lose his very own soul? What would it profit him? You're born into this world a sinner, dying, and on your way to hell. Only Jesus can reverse that by giving himself to you, the bread of life. What can Christ, why can Christ offer food that endures to eternal life? Because he not only gives food, but he himself is the bread of life. He's the bread of life. And God the Father has set his seal on him. Dr. Carson also says, The idea is that God has certified the Son as his own agent, authorizing him as the one who alone can bestow this food. Remember, remember at Jesus' baptism, and when Jesus was transfigured, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. God the Father set his seal on Christ. 
he approves of what Christ is doing. The second person of the Trinity. But of course, misunderstanding is the crowd's middle name. And it might be some of your names. I don't know who, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but many times we misunderstand. The Bible is clear. No one can work for salvation. Well, what do they say? What must we do to, do to be doing the works of God? Verse 28. But Ephesians 2.8, another passage of Scripture makes it clear. He wasn't talking about that kind of work. But by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. The only work we're saved by is God's works of righteousness on the cross. But their minds were so warped that they filtered everything Christ said through the warped, sinful minds. And Jesus again reveals, reveals truth to them. He says, you want to know the work I'm talking about? The work is to believe. There's only one work. Only one work is to believe. God sent His only Son to be your bread. That's what He wants you to believe. And His people didn't obey they didn't go to him for eternal life. They didn't keep their focus on the person of Christ. Their focus was on handouts. They didn't worship Christ. They didn't wor they worshiped self and the created things. They worshiped the created bread. They wanted the bread from themselves, not the creator himself. Let's conclude here. I would be remiss. It would be remiss if I didn't ask you these questions. Are you obeying Christ? And I need you to think about that. Did you come to him on his terms? Did you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you are, are a Christian, are you obeying him daily? Is your focus on him? Or is it on everything else but him? Is your life, can you honestly say, my life is Christ-centered? Are you a worshiper of God? Do you find yourself worshipping, not when you're delivered from a trial, but when you're in a trial, when hard times come? Can you worship? When Job, when, when uh, Steve Langella preached on Job, and we saw that Job, in the midst of his trials, he, he worshipped God. Do you love worshipping him? If the spiritual void in your life has been satisfied with the bread of life, Jesus Christ, you should be obedient to Him, focused on Him, and a worshiper of Him. Once again, doesn't mean perfect obedience. Doesn't mean perfect focus. Doesn't mean perfect worship. That'll be perfect when we get to heaven. But we're bent towards that. As Paul said, I strive for that perfection. Are you striving for that perfection? I know, listen, we, all, we can all, if we, we're, we're, we're free here to say what we want, right? We, we, we're honest here, right? Yes. I mean, are we perfect? Can I say I, I, I miss the boat sometimes? Yes, and you can say that with me. But a true believer believes in their heart. Jesus is truly enough. I don't need more than Christ. I don't. Let me conclude with a quote from Steve Mason. And listen to this. Carefully. 
When you have nothing left but God, for the first time, you become aware that God is enough. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you. And we praise you, Lord, that you are truly the bread of life. You are truly the bread that came down from heaven to give us eternal life. How can we thank you enough? For all eternity will we be thanking you, Lord. Not even eternity will give us enough time to thank you for what you've done. God, I pray for anyone here that is struggling with you being Savior and Lord of their lives. I pray that your word touch their heart tonight. And they would come to Christ. They would repent and turn from this and, and turn to you, the bread of life, for salvation. And those of here that truly do know you, Lord, but are struggling in their walk with you and then haven't been very obedient and haven't been very Christ-centered focus has drifted off of you. And their worship is very shallow. Help them, God, tonight to come back to you. To come back to you. Bless them. Put them back on the straight and narrow road. Thank you, God, for your greatness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy and grace. That's new every morning. Thank you.